0: Thank you jason for
1: ushering us into the presence of the lord this morning thank you jesus that you are with us this morning we sense your presence and we thank you you've told us when two or more gathered in your name that you're there in the midst what a precious truth i thank you lord that we can See your presence in the life of each other as we are growing in grace and mercy. I pray that this morning, Lord, you would open your Word and that you speak through a very (laughs) inadequate vessel. I just commit this time to you and ask you give me the grace to the words that would bring life to your glory in Jesus' name. Well i kind of struggled with this message this morning and uh i I want to say up front that this is not i'm not speaking politically or culturally but there will be political and cultural references to the message this morning on thursday of this past week there was a celebration of january the 6th 2021 in our nation's capital That was a curious word to me that I kept hearing all week long, celebrate for something that at best should have been a remembrance or a reflection of the tragic events of that day. As you'll remember, it began as a peaceful protest by patriotic American citizens who had a gnawing grievance regarding the election process of a few weeks earlier, but it was quickly transformed into a grotesque trespassed by a few hundred people, perpetrators who played right into the hand of their detractors. Now, Thursday was an attempt, I believe, by powerful people in government and in the left-leaning media to paint all the people that attended. And not only that, beyond that, to implicate all conservatives and all Christians, to paint them as anarchists and even terrorists. Ludicrous. It's been constantly referred to as an insurrection. But the participants had no weapons. There was no organized plan. Most anemic insurrection in the history of the world. Constantly referring to it as an insurrection is obviously a political maneuver to sway public opinion. But according to recent polling, the majority of the public isn't buying. With an estimated attendance of upwards of 3 million people, the vast majority of which did not enter the Capitol building, but rather watched in horror, as I did, as barricades were torn down and windows were broken. But they gave a broad brush characterization by politicians and the media, and that itself could be described as the big lie. Many in the crowds were hear, heard crying out, stop, this is not who we are, this is not what we do. There are also many questions about the instigators who were already at the front steps of the Capitol while the president was still speaking near the White House. Many have confirmed the presence of Antifa and Black Lives Matter groups that are shown on video encouraging the crowds migrating to the Capitol after the president's speech to go up the steps and to go in, where Capitol
0: Police are actually seen waving them in.
1: let me say i condemn the actions as i know you do When it took place that day it was so distressing to watch but at the same time i encourage and uh, admonish free citizens the right to assemble and to protest and to have their voices heard it's our constitutional right I believe as a citizen, we can condemn the violence and unlawful acts of many that day and still have reasonable questions about some of the events that took place and what led up to it. It's our right as citizens of the United States to question our government and its actions. But to left-wing zealots to question January 6th's insurrection mantra means that you must be a a conspiracy nut, or even a potential terrorist. Do I? <laughs> Well, this is the world that we find ourselves in, January 9th, 2022. It reminded me of Francis Schaeffer's book in 1976 that he wrote that poses the question, I believe, that needs to be considered again this morning. How should we then live? Of course, the subtitle of that is The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. This morning, I want us to consider what's happening in our country in biblical terms and to answer Schaefer's most relevant question. To do that, I want to open with three scriptures for us to consider. First, look with me at Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. Paul, in the previous verses, has lauded the historical triumph of faithful servants and saints. And he says in verse 13, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The second verse I want us to consider is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they make cause of your good deeds as they observe them. Glorify God in the day of visitation. And the third verse in Philippians 3, 20 through 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, I believe that these three verses could be summed up accurately by saying this, that for the believer in Christ, the adopted son and daughter of God, our citizenship is in heaven and the conduct of our lives, the manner of our walk, and the work of our hands should reflect that citizenship. How should we live? With heaven as our home, Christ as our reigning king, and this life as an opportunity for service and witness to the goodness and faithfulness of God and hope that some will see those good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. <coughs> With this in mind, let us consider the manner in which we should live in regard to our dual citizenship and what obligation we have to the laws and demands of man versus those of God. Many of you in this room were not here in 1981. Some of us were. In 1981, it was the first year of Ronald Reagan's presidency following record high inflation, high taxes, unemployment fuel shortages, gas lines, the Iran hostage crisis, and many other challenges of the Carter administration era. In July of 1981, a 35-year-old pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, named John Piper, opened a sermon with these words. I have a vision of the church as a people who are sojourners, strangers, exiles refugees in, the, in this world, a happy, peaceful, loving people who swear allegiance to a foreign king, Jesus Christ, and to none, none other. A people who reside in every nation, but whose all-determining citizenship is in heaven, from which we await our king and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a vision of the church as the freest of all peoples of the world free from fear and greed because the kingdom to which we belong cannot be shaken hebrews 12:28 and because our true fatherland is heaven hebrews 11:16 and the city of our destiny has god for its builder and maker hebrews 11:10 i see the church as a free people because our minds are not conformed to this age but are transformed by the mercies of God, so that we are not enslaved by fashion or fad or any other form of covetousness. I have a vision of the church with strong desires not shaped by the persuaders of this world, but shaped by the messages coming from the Fatherland. Oh, for a church with a single and radical allegiance to the king who said, my kingdom is not of this world. John 1830. And that was July of 1981. And those words to me are just as powerful today and relevant today as they were then. It's the challenge of every follower of Christ who has trusted in him alone for their salvation to daily remember where our primary citizenship lies. And in the process of remembering to pledge our lives to God as we yearn for our time of Paul reflected on this in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10 when he said, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body. And to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We prefer to be absent from the body and at home
0: with the Lord. That's a powerful statement. Have you had that
1: experience? How do you feel this morning? Ready to go home? There are days when I'm comfortable here, to be honest. But when I'm growing in Christ and in fellowship with his people and drawing near to him, that longing kicks in, you know. But in either absent or at home, our ambition is to be pleasing to him. And thinking of your home going, would you rather return home to the Father and to Jesus, our brother, with empty hands as the prodigal son returned from the far country? Or do you desire to return victoriously from a life well lived, possessing a good name and a faithful witness to the mercy and goodness of God, an unashamed workman who has handled accurately the truth of God's word and who has borne good fruit because you're grafted into the vine of Christ Jesus himself?
0: That's our our brothers, I'm sure.
1: Listen to these words where Christ describes himself in this way. John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine. Feel free to close your eyes as you listen to this. Ponder. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branch. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be, and that your joy may be made full.
0: Do we long to return home with gifts
1: like these befitting the king we serve? That we might have the opportunity to cast our crowns before? And bow down in worship. to. I'm sure that's your desire as mine is, but how do we make that real? It's the daily pursuit, the work of the Holy Spirit and the washing of water of the Word of God that empowers this desire to be pleasing. It's the work of God in our lives that gives us the desire to follow after Him in the Philippians 2, 12 through 13 admonishes us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good plan. In John Piper's sermon in July of 1981, he made this observation concerning our citizenship in this world. One of the crucial issues before the church in America today is, shall we be American with a pinch of religious flavor? Or shall we be Christ people with a pinch of American flavor? I think the issue is crucial because there are many in our churches, many of us, who have not seriously and earnestly asked themselves, am I more American than I am Christian? Are there not impulses in our society which define us in the world as American and which might influence us daily, but which are incompatible with the christ life and the cross life? Are we not constantly being shaped by forces in our culture which make it almost impossible for the world to see any difference in our values? If we're ever going to appear to the world as aliens and exiles on the earth, then we're going to have to go back and renew the declaration of allegiance by which we became Christians. Namely, Jesus is Lord. And we are going to have to wake up to the fact that this is a cultural and political statement. It is a radical declaration of independence from our culture and of absolute allegiance to a foreign king,
0: Jesus. We cannot allow
1: ourselves to be drawn into the fray, identified with a political party or a cultural movement at the expense of our witness and our obedience to Christ. Our citizenship in America must be relegated below our citizenship in heaven and our allegiance to God and Christ. And we all strive to be good law-abiding citizens, I'm sure, although sometimes it's a little more difficult when driving. Going to hear an amen. amen. <laughs> but our intent is to abide by the laws of the land because we believe from Scripture that God has placed those in authority who have authority over. Them. Sometimes that's hard to understand or hang on to. But Romans 13, 1 through 7, which is often quoted in regard to civil obedience, says this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Daniel two twenty through 21 says, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden. things. And in the New Testament in John 19 through 10, Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. I think these verses establish that authority is established by God. But does that mean that we must comply with all demands by a government or a leader? I think the answer is no. It's conditional. There are numerous examples in the Bible of civil disobedience. That's the result of a command or order that is in direct conflict with the commandment of God. In the book of Daniel, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they resisted King Nebuchadnezzar's decree to fall down and worship the golden image he had established when they heard the music. They refused and the king was so angry. He had the fire of the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. He had them bound and cast into them. The men that threw him in that got close enough to do that, they perished because it was so hot. But God saved the three of them. In fact, the king looked in in amazement and said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the four is like a son of the God. God not only saved them,
0: he was with them.
1: Another example is in the sixth chapter of Daniel, As Darius the king established a statute that for 30 days, No one can make a petition to any God or man but Darius himself. This was a setup, by the way. Daniel was one of Darius's three presidents, and there were others vying for a position. But when Darius had signed the injunction in Daniel 6.10, we read this. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open to Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Daniel refused to obey the king's statute because it was contradictory to his service to the Lord God, the King of Heaven. As a result, he didn't want to do it, but Darius had him cast into the lion's den. As I said, this was all a plot from other government officials that had perpetrated... This on Daniel and Darius, who did not want to kill them, But he cast Daniel into the lion's den, and then he spent the night, Darius, fasting in hopes that Daniel's God would save him. Early the next morning, King Darius hurried to the lion's den, and he cried out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? What a testimony. Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you. O king, I have committed no crime. Daniel's civil disobedience, because because he was obedient to God, not man, resulted not only in his being saved by an angel, and securing a witness to the faithfulness of God, that it so moved Darius that we read in Daniel 6, 25, 28 this. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lion. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius in the reign of, and in the reign of Cyrus the First. So we know from these examples that God looked favorably on these protests. Authority is established by God, and we are to obey those in authority unless their laws and injunctions call upon us to go against God's law. John Piper noted in that sermon in 1981, that the command to be subject in verses 1 and 5 of Romans 13 is not absolute. It depends on whether subjection will involve us in wrongdoing. The ultimate criterion of right and wrong is not whether a ruling authority commands it, but whether God commands it. The fact that God has ordained all authority does not mean all authority should be obeyed. And this is the key to remember. It is right to resist what God has appointed in order to obey what God has commanded. It is right to resist what God has appointed in order to obey what God has commanded. When governments no longer reward the right and punish the wrong, but they do the opposite, they punish the right and reward the wrong, then we as followers of a just and righteous God must resist that government. In closing, in Acts 4.19, Peter and John were arrested by the authorities and commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. What did they do? They continued to speak and preach in the name of Jesus. And then in Acts 5, 28, the high priest addressed them and said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. In summary, all leaders in a position of authority are there because God allows them to be there. As followers of Christ, we live in obedience to rules and laws that do not come into conflict with obedience to our King, Jesus. As Piper pointed out, some rules and governments are good. Some are bad. Some reward the right and punish the wrong. Others do the reverse. Most do a little bit of both. Therefore, the demands of subjection is relative, not absolute. It depends on whether the demands of the governing authority require us to disobey Jesus. If they do, we will not be subject at that point, but we'll say with Peter, we must obey God rather than men. We will honor God above the state. John R. W. Stott once said this in regard to civil Christian disobedience. Christian rebellion arises from the doctrine of mankind made in the image of God and therefore protests against all forms of dehumanization. It sets itself against the social injustices which insult God the creator. It seeks to protect human beings from oppression and longs to liberate. It protests against every authoritarian regime, whether of the left or the right, which discriminates against minorities denies people their civil rights, forbids the free expression of opinions, or imprisons people for their views alone. There will be instances in the future where we will be in conflict with our government because our citizenship is not of this world. When that happens, we must stand firm in this knowledge that Christ is our King, Heaven is our home, This life we are given by the grace of God is but an opportunity to give witness to unbelievers that this is so. We must obey God rather than men. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word to give us wisdom and understanding and knowledge in every aspect of life.
0: We live in troubling times, and on the surface, it's easy to despair. But God, I thank you that you are in control. No matter what happens, you are our king, Jesus. We serve you and no other. When we
1: come against uh, laws or decrees that are not in keeping with your commandments, give us the courage, Lord, to stand firm and to be true in our testimony and in our living the
0: way we conduct our lives. I think of the abortion issue. So many millions of babies that have been murdered since nineteen seventy one. God have mercy on this country. I pray that there would be a great revival that might come to this
1: to this country, and to the world, a great end game. But it will only come if your people are faithful to your word. We're only faithful to your word and the power of your spirit. God, do this work. Make us a faithful people of which you can look
0: upon and be proud of. Grow, discern pleasure. That's our desire. And we confess as a fellowship, Jesus, you are our King. There is no. We thank you in your name. Hope that makes (laughs) sense.